Water Chat, the Global Water Forum podcast, bringing you and your ears today's freshest water insights. Follow along at www.globalwaterforum.org. Hello and welcome to Q&A. I'm joined today by Brahma Shalani to discuss India's transboundary water relations with Pakistan, Bangladesh and China. Brahma Shalani is a professor of strategic studies at the New Delhi-based Center for Policy Research and a fellow at the Robert Bush Academy in Berlin. He is the author of nine books, including Asian Juggernaut, Water, Asia's New Battleground, and Water, Peace and War, Confronting the Global Water Crisis. Brahma, we are very happy to have you on this uh, podcast. Thank you. So, India's defense minister, uh, Rainat Singh, he recently said that you can you can pick your friend, but not your neighbor. Why is there a, there a perception in the neighborhood that India is a water hegemon over South Asian rivers, in spite of India's water treaties with Pakistan and Bangladesh? Rhetorically, one can say that a country can pick its friend, but not its neighbor. But in reality, the most profound global events in modern history have been the fragmentation of countries and the emergence of new countries. For example, the breaking away of South Sudan, East Timor and Eritrea, and the disintegration of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia showed that political maps are not carved in stone. In fact, India in 1971 created a new neighbor by turning what was East Pakistan into an independent Bangladesh. But to answer your question directly, India is anything but a water hegemon. There are three reasons for this. First, India has a unique riparian status. It is the only regional country that falls in all three categories. It's an upper riparian, a middle riparian, and a lower riparian. Such as India's geographical spread, that it has a direct stake in all the important river basins in South Asia. A second reason is that the only treaties in Asia, Asia has 57 transnational water basins, but the only treaties in Asia with specific sharing formulas on cross-border river flows are the ones India has signed with its two downriver neighbors, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And each of these two treaties sets a new principle, international water law. The 1966 Ganges Treaty with Bangladesh sets a new standard by guaranteeing the delivery of specific water quantities in the critical dry season. The Indus Treaty, for its part, stands out as the world's most generous water-sharing arrangement. And a third reason is that 
India is potentially affected by water-related actions of upstream countries, especially in China and Nepal, while its own room for maneuver is constricted by the treaty relationships it has with downstream Pakistan and Bangladesh on the Indus and the Ganges rivers, respectively. In fact, no country in Asia is more vulnerable to China's re-engineering of transboundary flows than India because it alone receives nearly half of all river waters that leave Chinese-controlled territory. So as you can see, India is anything but a water hegemon. Right. So <clears throat> can you take us through the, the formation of the Indus Water Treaty uh, that was signed in 1960? What were the en enabling conditions? The Indus Water Treaty is unique. It took um, many years to, uh, to be negotiated and to be concluded. The Indus sharing formula was heavily weighted in Pakistan's favor because it was influenced by the water use patterns up to 1947 when India and Pakistan became independent. Up to 1947, the irrigation system under British colonial rule was much better developed in the Indus Basin area of what became Pakistan. But the treaty was concluded not until 1960 by which time the irrigated farming had been introduced extensively in the Indian part of the Indus Basin, thanks to the construction of a network of new canals. In any event, past utilization patterns of basin waters is just one of several factors identified by customary international water law for determining an equitable and reasonable sharing of transboundary waters. The other factors spelled out in customer international law include the contribution of water by each basin state and their respective needs, the size of population dependent on the basin waters in each country, future national needs, and possible alternatives to planned or existing uses. Now, had such a holistic framework been the basis of the Indus Treaty negotiations, a much different sharing formula would have emerged. After all, four of the six Indus system rivers originate in India. India could have asserted its rights as the upper riparian state in customary international law, as China has sought to do vis-a-vis -vis its core riparian states. There were also geopolitical factors that persuaded India to sign the Indus Treaty. It was signed at a time when Sino-Indian relations were deteriorating after the Dalai Lama had fled to India. India had hoped that the water treaty with Pakistan would help improve relations with that country and also defuse the Kashmir dispute. However, in 1965, just five years after the Indus Waters Treaty was signed, Pakistan launched a war against India to grab 
the rest of Kashmir. And that war happened when India had still not recovered from its humiliating rout in 1962 at the hands of the Chinese military. Right. But um, what role did the, did the World Bank play? And people like uh, David uh, Lilienthal and uh, the president of the World Bank, Eugene Black. The World Bank midwife the treaty. Both the US and the West Bank, sorry, and, and the World Bank mounted pressure on India to agree to the Indus Waters Treaty. So at a time when India's relations with China were worsening, India needed American support. India also needed World Bank assistance for economic development. India wilted under the combined U.S. World Bank pressure. So Prime Minister Nero, he said in 1954, if you look at East and West Punjab as a whole, there is no lack of water. We only lack arrangements to take the water to the right places. Isn't that statement true today that the Indus Water Treaty, the survival of the treaty, is very much dependent on modifications within agriculture and irrigation communities in both Pakistani Punjab and Indian Punjab? I would say the answer to your question is both yes and no. The two Punjabs are growing food largely for export to overseas markets. By exporting water-intensive agricultural products like rice, they are in a sense exporting water in a virtual form and bringing their own water resources under strain. More fundamentally, Pakistan needs to restructure its economy so that agricultural exports are not its main foreign exchange earner. At present, water-stressed Pakistan is growing food, even for water-rich regions, such as the European Union. The EU is the top buyer of Pakistani rice. To make matters worse, agriculture accounts for 94% of all water consumed in Pakistan. This level of water consumption by the agricultural sector is simply not sustainable in the long run. In fact, it is already creating growing water stress in Pakistan. As for the survival of the Indus Water Treaty, that issue in my view is linked to political factors. Pakistan cannot continue to bleed India by waging what it calls a war of a thousand cuts and yet expect India to maintain its generosity on the Indus water allocations. Between Pakistan and India, as the U.S. has acknowledged, the principal problem is that of terrorism. India, for its part, cannot keep bearing the Indus Treaty's burdens without any tangible benefits accruing to India from that treaty. Pakistan remains focused 
on its rights under the treaty, but not on its obligations. As you know, two things are critical to the survival of any water treaty. First, any treaty's comparative benefits and burdens should be such that the advantages for each party must outweigh the burdens. Or else, the country that sees itself as a loser may fail to comply with its obligations or completely withdraw from the treaty. And second, since no treaty confers rights without obligations, each party can expect to secure its rights on, a, on an enduring basis only if it's willing to abide by its obligations as specified in the pact. A, a balance between rights and obligations is critical to building harmonious rules-based relations between co-riparian states. D David Gray, a very famous water resources expert who has worked for World Bank for 40 years, he said this about uh, the, the Indus River. He said, sovereignty, secrecy, and stationarity are over. And what he means is that, you know, water doesn't, uh, water moves, it doesn't respect boundaries. And we have the technology to share information. And uh, you, you can't plan the basin based on uh, historical flows because they're changing. So we need some kind of political innovation So I'm 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 wondering. <clears throat> so if we speak about governance mechanism, do you think formation of an Indus Water Resources Group between Pakistan and India that would consist of both non-governmental people but also governmental people? Do you think if that if that could be created, do you think that could reduce the tensions between the countries? The Indus Waters Treaty is one of the most detailed water treaties ever concluded in history. If you look at the full text of the treaty with its annexures, it's virtually a book-length treaty. It has so many clauses. It defines restrictions on India, the upper Iberian, the rights of the lower Iberian Pakistan, Yet, such a detailed treaty is running into issues largely because the basin politics is not right. Mm. If the basin politics is not right, then even a good treaty arrangement like the Indus Waters Treaty will not work efficiently. I think another issue we have to keep in mind is that the Indus Waters Treaty is not just a water-sharing treaty. Actually, it partitions the rivers. This is the only treaty in the world that actually partitions whole rivers. Mm. It, it draws a line in the middle of the Indus Basin, reserving the upper rivers for Pakistan, the big rivers, and keeping the small rivers for India. Now, by partitioning rivers, 
and by and by treating the two parties as adversaries the treaty restricts restricts or makes it more difficult to promote genuine collaboration so the kind of group that you have in mind will we you know will will find it very difficult to overcome these structural obstacles that are inbuilt in this treaty and then and then of course you have two uh, other external factors one is uh, afghanistan and another one is china i mean i i read recently that kabul is one of the most rapidly growing cities in the whole world yes and um uh, uh, the indus waters sorry the indus basin extends to afghanistan and pakistan draws water from from rivers that flow in from afghanistan including an important tributary of the indus system but from india itself pakistan gets more than 167 billion cubic meters of water annually that's more than 80% of the indus basin waters from india as far as pakistan as far as afghanistan is concerned as afghanistan's own water needs grow the flow of the indus tributary from afghanistan to pakistan is likely to decrease posing new water challenges for parts of pakistan that rely on the indus water flow from afghanistan after the uh, abrogation of article 370 uh, it is likely that jammu kashmir and, and ladakh will receive a boost in development but from where will the water come from because i i read the other day in the world street journal and they they had an article about ladakh that uh, demand for water is growing rapidly because of tourism this is a good question yeah i know <laughs> uh, given that water is jammu kashmir and ladakh's main natural resource and essential for economic development the gifting of the waters of the state of jammu and kashmir to pakistan by india under the indus treaty has fostered popular grievances in jammu kashmir and ladakh The state government of Jammu and Kashmir in 2011 hired an international consultant to assess the state's cumulative economic losses from the Indus Treaty imposed fetters on water utilization. Now these lo- losses run into hundreds of millions of dollars annually. Demands in the Jammu and Kashmir state legislature for revision or abrogation of the Indus Treaty fled periodically in fact in 2003 the legislature passed a resolution unanimously recommending that the treaty the industry be reviewed 
Now, this backlash from underdevelopment in Jammu and Kashmir, which has been made worse by a Pakistan abetted Islamist insurrection, prompted New Delhi to embark on several modestly sized runoff river hydropower projects in Jammu and Kashmir to address chronic electricity shortages there. Runoff river hydropower plants, as you know, use a river's natural flow energy and elevation drop to produce electricity without the need for a dam reservoir. In fact, runoff river projects are permitted by the industry within defined limits. But Pakistan wants no Indian works on the three large rivers that have been reserved for Pakistan's use under the treaty. So to throttle or delay an Indian project, Pakistan seeks international intercession by invoking the treaty's dispute settlement provisions, which permit a neutral expert assessment or the constitution of an arbitral tribunal. By seeking to deny Jammu and Kashmir of India the limited benefits permissible under the treaty, Pakistan wishes to further its strategy to ferment discontent and violence there. So Pakistan will continue to wage water war in that sense, and India must ensure that water availability does not crimp economic development in Jammu or Kashmir or Ladakh. Without India abrogating or violating the terms of the Indus Treaty, India must assert all its rights under this treaty, including fully utilizing its share of the allotted waters and building storage as permitted by the treaty. The fact is that India has failed to fully exercise even its limited rights under the treaty. To give you one example, India has built no storage on the three large upper rivers. Although the treaty permits India to store 4.4 billion cubic meters of these rivers waters. But India has zero storage on these three large rivers. Again, on these three large rivers, India is allowed to build runoff river, run river hydropower plants without dam reservoirs. Yet, India's total installed generating capacity in Jammu and Kashmir currently does not match the electric output of a single major dam in Pakistan, such as Tarvela, opened in 1976. In the lower basin of the Indus, where India has full rights, the substantial waters of the three smaller rivers go, you know, the, the substantial waters of these three smaller rivers that India does not utilize fully, these waters then flow to Pakistan as bonus waters. So within the existing framework of the industry, India by exercising its rights can substantially meet the demands 
the water demands in Jammu, Kashmir, and Ladakh. What step has the federal government of India under uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, taken to work with states like Jammu Kashmir, Punjab and Haryana towards uh, progressive water pricing and institutional accountability? When the Indian Republic was established after World War II, the framers of its constitution did not visualize water scarcity in the decades ahead, given the relative abundance of water resources then. They did not see water stress coming. Therefore, they left water as a state-level subject, rather than making it a federal subject, a federal issue warranting integrated resource management and holistic policy making. So the constitution left state governments in charge of water resources, including for irrigation and flood control. The federal government under the constitution was empowered to regulate and develop only interprovincial river basins to the extent allowed by parliament in the larger national interest. In fact, the federal government's rule got largely confined to managing interprovincial water disputes, reflected in the enactment of the Interstate River Water Disputes Act in 1956, the same year that Indian states were reorganized and new ones were created along ethnic lines. The Disputes Act has subsequently been modified several times by the National Parliament to help deal with the plethora of interstate water disputes that have arisen over shared water resources. Prime Minister Modi has begun his second term in office by creating a new integrated water resources ministry. This is a good move, but the ministry also needs constitutional authority to be able to play a significant role in promoting smart water management. Nature is indivisible. Communities and states cannot prosper by undercutting environmental sustainability. The new water ministry must promote the protection and ecological restoration of watercourses, securing water efficiency gains through agricultural productivity measures, developing drought-resistant crop varieties, improving water quality to offset decrease in water quantity, and utilizing alternative cooling technologies for power generation. Energy sector, energy sector, as you know, is a major consumer of water resources. Increasing water storage by channeling excess water during the monsoons to artificially recharge aquifers is a must 
to tackle the serious problem of groundwater depletion in India, especially in Punjab, Haryana, Delhi, and Rajasthan states. NASA scientists in the United States observed several years ago that the underground water resources in northwest India are vanishing gradually. Groundwater resources are being recklessly exploited because they have few controls on their extraction. Also contributing to this practice is the fact that unlike, surf, unlike surf, surface water, degradation of groundwater is not visible to the human eye because groundwater reserves are hidden, are hidden underground, and therefore they're not visible to the human eye. And, and, and so often these resources are extracted in a reckless manner. Do you think it, there, are, there are some scholars who say that India should shift its uh, agriculture production from northeastern states like Punjab and Haryana? Is, is that really possible to do that? Well, uh, realistically, um, it makes sense for India to grow more food in the eastern parts which are water-rich. Punjab itself is a water-rich state. It has several rivers flowing through it. The problem is that Punjab has become a major grower of water-intensive crops. And that has led to degradation of water resources. I think what can be done is for Punjab to grow food that is less water-intensive and water-intensive crops should be gradually gradually moved to the eastern parts of India where water resources are not um, under pressure. But this requires um, a lot of government governmental intervention, governmental um, incentives, and in a large democracy like India, mustering that kind of governmental action is no easy task. Uh, in relation to water treaties and agreements, do you think India and Bangladesh will reach an agreement over the Tesa River? when Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina of Bangladesh visits India in October? Bangladesh is highly dependent on rivers flowing in from India, principally the Brahmaputra and the Ganges rivers. The Tista, which drains a part of northwestern Bangladesh, is relatively a small river for Bangladesh. But the Tista is the lifeline of the northern part of India's West Bengal state. For Bangladesh, the Brahmaputra is the largest source of fresh water. China's upstream damming of the Brahmaputra holds the greatest implications for Bangladesh because it is located furthest downstream on the Brahmaputra. On the Ganges River, India has a water-sharing treaty with Bangladesh, which grants Bangladesh about a 50% share 
of the downstream flows. Under the treaty, India is committed to maintaining cross-border Ganges flows at prescribed levels around the year, especially in the, in the very dry season, which extends from March to May. In that driest period, India is committed to providing Bangladesh 35,000 cubic feet of water per second of time. Bangladesh wants India to also reserve for it about half of the waters of the Tista River. The Tista River originates along the border where the Himalayan Indian state of Sikkim meets with Bhutan and Tibet. The Tista ultimately merges with the Brahmaputra in the Bangladeshi Delta. So in a way you can call the Tisa a Brahmaputra tributary. The draft text of the proposed Tista Treaty between India and Bangladesh has been under discussion since at least 2010. And the, and the two countries would have signed the treaty way back in 2013 but for the opposition of the government of India's West Bengal state. In India, the states are very powerful under the Indian constitution. In fact, the Indian states are more powerful than the American states under the US constitution. So it's not easy for the federal government in New Delhi to ride roughshod over a state government. However, it's my view that it's only a matter of time before the Tista agreement is signed. And once this agreement is signed, it will end the long global absence of a new water sharing treaty. You know that the last water sharing treaty signed in the world was signed way back in 2003, 2002. 2002 when Syria and Lebanon agreed on a sharing formula on their small border river known as Al-Kabir. Since then, there has been a big drought in water sharing treaties. So hopefully the Tista Treaty, once it's signed, will mark a watershed. India is also concerned about its transboundary water relations with China and specifically the effect of water diversions near the Great Bend in the Brahmaputra Yalung Sangpu Basin. In this case with China, from India's perspective, don't you think it's more driven by perception of threat rather than hydrologic reality? Well, let's get the facts right first. China is the world's biggest dam builder with the country boasting more large dams than the rest of the world combined. Also, China does not have a single water sharing treaty with any neighbor because it doesn't believe in the concept of water sharing. Yet, most of Asia's international rivers originate in territories that China annexed 
after its 1949 communist revolution. The Tibetan Plateau is the world's largest freshwater repository and the source of Asia's greatest rivers, including those that are the lifeblood of mainland China, of South Asia, and of Southeast Asia. Other Chinese-held homelands of ethnic minorities contain the headwaters of rivers such as the Irtush, Ili, and Amur, which flow to Russia and Central Asia. China's dam program on international rivers is following a well-established pattern. Build more modest-sized dams on a river's difficult uppermost reaches and then construct larger dams in the upper middle sections of the river as the river picks up greater water volume and momentum. And then finally embark on mega dams in the border area facing another country. Now this is the pattern China has been following. Take the Mekong River. The cascade of mega dams on the Mekong River is located in the area just before the Mekong enters continental Southeast Asia. China could follow the same pattern on the Brahmaputra, which is why there is concern that China could build mega dams at the river's Great Bend. The Great Bend of the Brahmaputra is located very close to the border with India. China is not part of any treaty arrangements and thus free to do whatever it wishes on any transnational river, irrespective of the downstream impacts. So one has to bear these facts in mind, and these facts and China's predatory practices and its unilateralist moves do give genuine cause for concern and even alarm. I think, I think it was uh, an Indian journalist uh, named B.G. Verges. I think he said, before he passed away, that he suggested that maybe India and China can build uh, a dam together near the Great Bend. What is, what is your view on that? Well, <laughs> neither China nor India should be building anything at the Great Bend. The Great Bend is a ecological hotspot. It is home to rare species. It is critical to biodiversity. Damming the Great Bend will wreak untold damage on the environment. So that's a terrible idea to even think of a joint project at the Great Bend. The Great Bend is also a sacred place for Tibetan Buddhists. And the Tibetan Buddhists never dare to enter the Great Bend in respect 
in respect for that sacred land. And that helped to preserve that area, the Great Bend, in a pristine manner. But now with China controlling Tibet and paying no regard to Tibetan traditions, the danger is that China unilaterally will build megadams in the Great Bend. How, how can India draw China into the South Asian water equation? Well, that's a tough nut to crack. Bringing China on board will not be easy. By building an array of large dams on rivers flowing to other countries, Beijing is already roiling inter-Iperian relations in Asia and making it more difficult to establish rules-based water cooperation and sharing. In fact, China has emerged as a key impediment to building institutionalized collaboration on shared water resources in Asia. In contrast to the bilateral water treaties between many of its neighbors, China, as I explained earlier, rejects the concept of a water sharing arrangement or even joint rules-based management of common resources. In 2012, just two years ago, China sought to punish India by cutting off the flow of hydrological data. This action not only breached bilateral accords, but also caused preventable flood-related deaths in India's Assam state. This action helped to highlight how China is fashioning unconventional tools of coercive diplomacy. Yet the fact remains that China is central to Asia's water map. We have to deal with that reality. China is a starting point of rivers that flow to 18 downstream countries. No other country in the world serves as the riverhead for so many countries located downstream. But by erecting dams, barrages, and other water diversion structures in its borderlands, China is creating an extensive upstream infrastructure that arms it with the capacity to weaponize water. With water woes worsening across Asia, Asia faces a stark choice. Stay on the present path, which can lead to more environmental degradation and even water wars, or fundamentally change course by embarking on the path of rules-based cooperation. The latter path demands not only water-sharing accords and the free flow of hydrological data, but also greater efficiency in water consumption, increased use of recycled and desalinated water, and innovative conservation and adaptation efforts. None of this, in my view, will be possible without the cooperation of China, which 
thus far has refused to enter into institutionalized collaboration with any downstream neighbor. If China does not abandon its current approach, the prospects for a rules-based order in Asia could perish forever. So getting China on board has become critical to shape water for peace in Asia. You said before that uh, India stopped providing hydrological data to India. Why did they do that? They stopped providing India hydrological data in 2017, but they resumed in 2018. They stopped providing India hydrological data in 2017 for two reasons. One, India stood out as the only country in the world that not only opposed China's Belt and Road Initiative, but openly boycotted the first BRI summit that was held in April 2017. And soon after the Indian boycott of the first BRI summit, China and India were locked in a military standoff on the Doklam Plateau. So China had two reasons to punish India, and it sought to punish India by withholding vital hydrological data. Final question. Uh, In terms of regime type, does democracy matter for cooperation in transboundary river basins? What is your... Yes, it does. Basin-wide collaboration is not possible when one or more of the riparian states are autocratic. Autocratic systems that refuse to abide by even basic international rules and norms are an impediment to institutionalized water collaboration. This is so apparent in the basins of Southern Asia, with Pakistan exporting terrorism and China engaged in defiant unilateralism. The result is that shared water resources, instead of fostering cooperation, are fostering discord. Water has become a new divide in Southern Asia, between China and India, and also between the countries of South Asia. It was a privilege to have you on, uh, Professor Brahmashlani. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Water Chat. If you would like to know more about anything discussed on today's program, you can find us at globalwaterforum.org. You can also catch us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at GWFWater and Facebook we can be found at facebook.com forward slash global water forum. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to catching you next time. Thank you.